Order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Doug Naismith. Question number one, Mr Speaker. Um, Mr Speaker, sir, before listing my engagements, I'm sure that the whole House will join with me in condemning utterly the brutal and shameful attacks in India yesterday that killed so many innocent people. And our message from Britain to the people and country of India is that we stand with them in solidarity to defeat this terrorism wherever it exists. Mr Speaker, I'm sure also the House would want to join with me in sending our sympathy and condolences to the family of Private Damien Raymond Jackson, who was killed in Afghanistan last week. As we know, this is a difficult mission, but his country can be immensely proud of him, and we mourn his loss. Mr Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others. In addition to my duties in the House, I will have further such meetings later today. Smith, following his visit last month to my constituency to South Mead in Bristol North West, can my right honourable friend tell me what more local people said they want done about crime and antisocial behaviour? Did anyone suggest that hugging a hoodie would help? I have to say, no, I've never felt like hugging a hoodie other than possibly my honourable friend, the member for Lanark and Hamilton East, wherever he may be. And even that sparingly. Um, but I have to say that I think what is important in the context of what the right hon. gentleman was saying the other day is that it is important we recognise, of course, we need to tackle some of the underlying causes of crime. That is the reason for the New Deal for the unemployed, which they oppose for the short start programme that they turn their nose up at, for the extra spending on education and nursery places, but we also need strong antisocial behaviour so that people are given protection in strong antisocial behaviour measures that he used to condemn as a gimmick, but I think most people in the country support wholeheartedly. I have to say, if the Prime Minister wants to turn this into a session when I answer the questions and he asks them, he can always call a general election. Can I associate myself with the remarks the Prime Minister made about the death of Private Damien Jackson? And we too, on this side of the House, send our condolences to the victims of those dreadful bomb attacks in India and to their families. These attacks were indiscriminate and cowardly, and they show once again that all countries are at risk from terrorism and that all of us must stand together to defeat it. Amen. This week, the only voluntary police force merger between Cumbria and Lancashire was abandoned. The Chief Constable of Cumbria said if it can't work there, it can't work anywhere. Will the Prime Minister now accept that forced mergers are certainly out of the question? Amen. For exactly the reason that uh, my right honourable friend gave the Minister of State this morning, uh, we've listened to the representations that have been made. We don't believe it's sensible to force the merger. But in relation to Lancashire and Cumbria, let me just explain to him that the reason for the difficulty there is that they cannot agree on the equalisation of the precept. But actually it is still important and will be important in parts of the country that there is either merger of forces or certainly a far better strategic capability that crosses border lines. Mr Speaker, three weeks ago I asked the Prime Minister the identical question. I asked him would he abandon force mergers and he said no. 
Can he tell us what has changed? Hasn't the Prime Minister been wasting police time? Uh, no. We were asked to listen to the representations that have been made. We have listened to those representations. As he knows, the reason why mergers are on the agenda is the report by Her Majesty's Inspectorate of... No, they are not off the agenda. The reason why we have listened is because people have made representations about the, the forced mergers that people don't want to see. On the other hand, the point that has been made by the Inspector of the Constabulary remains, and there will be areas where it is important for us, for example, to have far greater strategic cooperation across force lines and also to merge where we can find the consent to do so. So the flagship of forced murders has sunk without trace. Let's, um, let's turn to another flagship that's sinking fast, ID cards. Will the Prime Minister admit to the House that the whole project is now being reviewed, including the timetable and the type of card? No, I certainly will not say that because it isn't correct. Uh, it is very important that we... It is very, and if, if, if he's basing himself on the leaked emails in the newspapers, I suggest he doesn't raise the topic of leaked emails. But I would say to him that if he looks at what is happening, actually it is important we proceed for identity cards for the very simple reason that if we don't have a proper identity card system, we will not be able to track illegal immigrants in this country, prevent identity fraud and abuse, and it is for that reason we most certainly will proceed to introduce identity cards. But everyone apart from the Prime Minister knows this project's in deep trouble. The civil servant responsible for delivering it says it's been delayed. Another one says it's impossible to imagine the full scheme being brought in before 2026. Even the Prime Minister will be gone by then. So who is telling the truth? The Prime Minister who says it's all going fine, or the civil servants who say it's a botched job? They don't say that. What they say is that, of course, we've got to get the details of how we introduce it right, and we will. For any programme like this, it's a huge programme, and there are bound to be changes along the way. But the basic point of introducing identity cards, alongside the fact that we will have to have biometric passports introduced in any event, is of essential importance to the security of this country. And I say to the right honourable gentleman, it is actually he who has changed his mind on many, many... Well, does he want me to go through them? He opposed tuition fees and now supports them, right? He opposed foundation hospitals and now supports them. The fact of the matter is, he will end up, he will end up agreeing with this proposal as well, because it's right and necessary for the country's security. This week we've seen police mergers abandoned, we've seen ID cards delayed, we've seen tax credits completely defrauded, and after all that we've discovered we've got a Deputy Prime Minister who thinks he's a cowboy. <laughs> and apparently he is, and I quote, he's really looking forward to standing in for the Prime Minister over the summer. Please tell us that isn't going to happen. Well, let me tell the right on gentleman what is going to happen. We will carry on with the policies. Yeah. We will carry on. I notice, again, he doesn't ask me about any specific policy issue at all. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. We... Let the Prime Minister speak. We will continue to introduce the anti-social behaviour legislation this country needs. We will pursue identity cards because they're right. We will continue with the health and school reforms because they're right. We have launched the energy review, the pensions proposals. We will carry on making the decisions that are right for the long-term interests of this country. I 
asked the Prime Minister a pretty simple question. Is the Deputy Prime Minister going to be running the country in August when he's away? Yes or no? The arrangements have been exactly the same as they've been in the previous years, if I can say to the right honourable gentleman. But the important thing, but the important thing is that this country's future, both in terms of the economy and public services and law and order, pensions and energy, no, when it comes to the big decision, this side has the answers. He can't make up his mind. Yes, he won't, he won't even dare debate the policy ideas he's had. In the last few weeks, he's launched, his, he's launched his proposal on the Bill of Rights. He launched his law and order policy on Monday. The fact is that none of them stand up for scrutiny. If the country wants the right long-term decisions, it will carry on backing this government. If we are going to make sure that this country's energy supplies are secure in the future and that we are able to grow sustainably and reduce CO2 emissions, we need the full balance of policies, energy efficiency, renewables, but also replacing existing nuclear power stations. Sir Mingus Campbell. May I associate my honourable and right honourable friends with the expressions of sympathy and condolence from both the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition. Last week, the Prime Minister told me that it was not true that the United States had to meet a different standard of evidence than the United Kingdom in extradition cases. On the 16th of December 2003, Baroness Scotland told the House of Lords that the United Kingdom had to reach a higher threshold than the United States, which is true, no difference, or higher threshold. The evidence uh, I have from um, the consultations that the Attorney General has carried out with the Senior Treasury Council are twofold, and I think it may help the House if I just set it out. The first is that, um, in his view, the test, in the Attorney General's view, the test that is applied by the United States, the one of probable cause, is roughly analogous to the one that we apply in this country. But secondly, and perhaps, if the House will listen, perhaps more importantly, According to the Senior Treasury Council, even under the old test of having to provide prima facie evidence, these people would still be extradited. And indeed, the case for extradition was the case for extradition was actually mounted originally under the old law, not the new law. Let me say one other thing, however, that I totally understand the concerns of the particular individuals and their families. And I can say that the Attorney General has spoken to the U.S. Department of Justice and has been informed that the American prosecutors will not oppose bail as long as the appropriate conditions are put in place by the court or agreed to by the defendants. But I do not believe it would be right if we ended up applying a higher standard and burden of proof to America than we do to many, many other countries, including European countries, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and even countries like Azerbaijan and Albania. It doesn't appear to deal with the contradiction between what the Prime Minister said last week and what Baroness Scotland said to the House of Lords. Will the Prime Minister not now accept that his government has negotiated an unfair treaty against the interests of the British people? It's a treaty which was needlessly rushed through the House of Commons in a committee stage lasting only 90 minutes, and that it is absurd to continue to act under that treaty when the United States declines to ratify it. In view of the anxiety in the business community and in both Houses of Parliament, will the Prime Minister now renegotiate the treaty? Again, let me explain to the Right Honourable Gentleman that the basis of this, which is that the United States um, is extraditing these 
people from the United Kingdom in circumstances where we could not extradite them from the United States is, according to the information I have wrong, they would indeed have been extradited even under the old treaty provisions, that probable cause, which is under the American Constitution and will remain even if the treaty is ratified, is indeed similar to the test that we apply. And the real issue, which I totally understand for reasons that are very obvious, is the consideration for the men and their families were they to be refused bail in the United States. We're doing everything we can to avoid that situation arising. But if we were to end up reversing that extradition treaty, it would not be the case that we would be taking away a special privilege given to America. We would actually be imposing a special detriment on America, and that couldn't be right. Sir Gerald Kaufman. Mr. Speaker, will my right honourable friend accept that when I was mugged and robbed in London, the hooded youths responsible were simply making a plea for love and understanding? And will he uh, agree with my constituents that while the overwhelming majority of young people are decent and law-abiding, our constituents look to protection from a menacing minority to this government's antisocial behaviour laws, which the Liberal Democrats oppose and the Conservatives undermine? First of all, I'm sorry that my uh, right honourable friend had such a distressing experience, but he is, of course, absolutely right in what he says. And the majority of young people, the overwhelming majority, are decent law-abiding young people. They're often the victims of antisocial behaviour and crime. That is absolutely true. But for that small minority that make life hell for people in their local communities and terrorise and commit acts of thuggery like the one my right honourable friend describes, the fact is we need the tough powers in the antisocial behaviour legislation to deal with them. And of course we've got to deal with the underlying causes of crime as well. As why, for example, we're doubling the amount of money going into drug treatment, also opposed, incidentally, by the party opposite. But when it comes to standing up the law-abiding citizen against these people, this side will do so. Nate Hub. The Prime Minister will know the reputation of Harefield Hospital as a world leader for complex heart surgery. Yeah, yeah. Will he join me in congratulating the staff for what they achieved despite inadequate facilities and following the slow death of the Paddington Health Campus? Will he, uh, will he join the call for the future of the hospital to be resolved quickly so that the Trust can move on and build an even better service for patients? Well, I certainly hope that it can be resolved quickly, but I hope he, he would also accept that there have been enormous strides forward in cardiac care in this country over the past few years. I mean, when we came to office, people would, would often wait 18 months, two years for heart operations, often died on waiting lists for heart operations. That is now down, I think, to around about three months, um, the average actually lower than that. There's an immense amount of investment going into things like statin. So, of course, I hope the future of Harefield Hospital is settled shortly, but I wouldn't think it right that anyone in this House would believe that cardiac care in this country not significantly improved in the past few years as a result of the investment and change. Is my right honourable friend aware that the, the, the too long awaited announcement that the, the rollout of Manchester's Metrolink 
was very strongly welcomed by Mancunians as, as further evidence of the partnership between central government and the city of Manchester. But it, in that context, now that Manchester is seen as being the social, um, economic and entertainment capital and pole for the, for the whole region and indeed throughout the, the world. Um, <laughs> Would my, would my right honourable friend now organise a competition to try to explain what was the something dreadful that happened to the PPS and the Leader of the Opposition when he was in Manchester recently? Um, it would be nice to know that, but I suspect we won't. Uh, but my honourable friend is, right honourable friend is absolutely right, of course, in what he's saying. And the important thing is that Manchester makes use of the, the over £500 million available in order to expand the Metrolink. It would be a fantastic project for the whole of the city, and it shows again the benefit of investing in inner city regeneration, in particular in fantastic cultural capitals like Manchester. Julian Lewis, number three, Mr Speaker. We made clear in our 2005 manifesto that we're committed to retaining the independent nuclear deterrent. This means for the life of the current system. As I've said previously, decisions on the period beyond that will be taken later this year. The whole House will note that the Prime Minister was a lot less definite than the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who talked about retaining it not just for this Parliament, but long into the future. Will he perhaps answer this question? If the decision is taken to replace the Trident submarine fleet with a successor fleet, will it be funded from within the current defence budget, or will extra funds be allocated to it from outside the defence budget? Any uh, decision on funding has to await a, a later time and a later negotiation. Of course, I think most people understand it is very much a sui generis um, uh, decision on the independent nuclear deterrent. But the reasons why we want to retain the deterrent were set out in our manifesto, and I entirely agree with what the Chancellor said. Jeremy Corbyn. Could the Prime Minister assure the House that the Government is committed to the terms of the 1970 Non-Proliferation Treaty, which does require the five declared nuclear weapon states to engage in a process of long-term disarmament, and does he not accept that rearmament by any of the five declared nuclear weapon states reduces any moral clout we might have in encouraging other states not to develop their own nuclear weapons and thus make the world a more dangerous place? Actually, we have made considerable reductions both in our systems and I think actually in the number of warheads as well. Um, although, of course, it is true that progressively over time, uh, if we can negotiate the right terms of this, we want to see a reduction uh, in nuclear capability worldwide, but it has to be done by negotiation. Steve Webb. Speaker. Very sick babies are being shunted around the country because of a lack of intensive care capacity. Yet when I asked the Department of Health about the issue six weeks ago, they said they didn't collect the information centrally. Could the Prime Minister get the Department of Health to take an interest in what's going on in the health service, and could he get this urgent problem sorted out quickly? Yes. Of course, they, they are deeply concerned about the issue to do with uh, neonatal networks and units right round the country. And it's fair to say, I think, that over the past few years alone, there's been an increase in funding of somewhere in the region of £70 million for such units. It is important, of course, that we also recognise we are training far more staff for them, but there's also a greater demand. And I'm pleased to, 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 to say that the mortality rate has actually declined substantially, but of course we're looking at what more we can do, both in relation to staff and in relation to resources. David Hamilton. Mr Speaker, 
Could the Prime Minister tell us that yesterday we took evidence from the Defence Committee took evidence from the Secretary of State for Defence? In that, in that statement, he made it quite clear the way this possible consultation will take place on the nuclear deterrent. Surely it is right, irrespective of one's point of view, that the power should come back to this House to make that ultimate determination. Surely that is exactly how it should be done and the vote should be taken here. As I have said before, my right honourable friend will announce at the time we, we uh, publish uh, the decision that has been taken by uh, the Government as to exactly the form of making sure we consult the House. But I would point out that we gave and have given votes on very, very sensitive issues before, um, and of course that is one strong possibility in relation to this particular issue. Richard Benyon. Can I, can I press the Prime Minister on that point? Why is the Prime Minister so determined to avoid a vote in this House on the renewal, on, on the renewal of our nuclear deterrent? He may not have the support of the member for Islington North or the member for Pendle, but he certainly will have support on this side of the House if he puts it to a vote. I th thank you very much for that, which no doubt is kindly meant, but I refer to what I've just said a moment ago. And on these sensitive issues, uh, we have often, I think before the Iraq war, we were one of the very first governments to give people a vote on that before this country took the decision to go to war. So um, we are not at all adverse to votes of this House on extremely sensitive issues, and I've no doubt there will be the fullest debate about it. Kate Hoy. Mr. Speaker, I wonder if the Prime Minister could explain to the House why he takes such a different position on education in this part of the United Kingdom than he does in Northern Ireland. Why did he, why did he support his backbenchers going through to keep selection in England unless parents decided against, yet he forced through in one and a, two and a half hours the complete change to the system in Northern Ireland? Why has he such different standards for education in Northern Ireland? There is, of course, uh, I hope, a way that this can be resolved by people in Northern Ireland, and that is for the devolved decision. Of course, it's always, these are always very, very difficult decisions, and it's true it was taken in this instance by the Scottish Executive. It's also true that people are perfectly free, of course, to raise it, but he will know that we're trying to make the right decisions in relation to procurement within very strict budgetary terms, and I'm sure no one wants to make sure that the people in his constituency are out of work, but those decisions have been taken by the appropriate authority. Jim Dobbin. Speaking as a, a Scot with a north-west of England uh, constituency, is the Prime Minister aware of the early day motion at 2519, which refers to um, honourable members' voting rights? Um, that early day motion argues that to ban uh, members uh, of Parliament from Scotland from voting on English matters could lead to a constitutional crisis or to the breakup of the United Kingdom. Now, it also uh, supports every question, member Jim. in this House, question, every member in this House, to accept and, and get access to the voting systems, the democratic systems in this House. Does the Prime Minister agree with that? And uh, will he sign the LED motion? <laughs> that, that's, um, I think the, the, the important thing is to stress that um, England is, of course, the majority uh, country within the United Kingdom. Um, we actually vote through the money here in this House, of course, uh, as the constitutional settlement. The vast majority of the MPs that do that are English, and I think devolution is a sensible way of keeping the United Kingdom together, but I think it would be a very, very grave mistake indeed to end up with two classes of MP in this House. I compliment you on your visual acuity in spotting me between the two tallest members of Parliament. <laughs> it strikes me that if the head of a school 
a charity, a public body or a council were to announce their retirement but refuse to set a date, they would be rightly considered both arrogant and self-centred. Why should we consider the Prime Minister any differently? Because there was an election last year that we won and he lost. Bob Lightson. This weekend at the G8 summit in St Petersburg, discussions will take place on energy, education and infectious diseases. Could the Prime Minister tell the House what his objectives are for this summit and how he sees those objectives building upon uh, the commitments that were given at Glen Eagles a year ago? I think in particular in relation to the G8, it is important that we recommit to the objectives in helping Africa uh, and there will be a particular focus on education at the G8 and then in relation to climate change and energy, although the summit will focus particularly on energy security, nonetheless, again, I think it's important that we focus on climate change as well. But one of the, the single most important issues that will run throughout the summit, even if not formally, will be the World Trade Organization talks, which at the moment are stalled. It is extremely important, in my view. This weekend may be one of the last opportunities we've got to restart those talks productively and get the right agreement between Brazil and India and the developing countries on the one hand and America, Europe and Japan on the other. Andrew Robertson. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. In 1997, the Prime Minister wrote, in issuing this ministerial code, I should like to reaffirm my strong personal commitment to restoring the bond of trust between the British people and their government. I would expect all ministers to work within the letter and spirit of the code. And last week he told the Liaison Committee, if there is reason to believe someone has broken the code, I will take action. Well, there's the valuable transport union flat which the Deputy Prime Minister occupied as Transport Secretary. There's the behaviour with a junior female office subordinate which would have led to the sacking of a civil service. And now there's Philip Anschluss's hospitality. When will a Prime Minister live up to his fine words and call in Sir John Bourne to investigate these allegations of breaches of the Ministerial Code? Nothing to say to the Honourable Gentleman other than the fact that we have got one of the largest regeneration projects that will happen in London, which will bring somewhere in the region of 10,000 affordable homes, 20,000 jobs, billions... Order, order. A question has been put to the Prime Minister. I don't want Honourable Members shouting at him while he answers. Prime Minister. I'm pointing out that... Order. Order. I was just point, pointing out that as a result of the regeneration, there will be somewhere in the region of 10,000 affordable homes, over 20,000 jobs, £5 billion worth of private sector investment, and I think it's entirely right that we support such a huge regeneration coming to this country, but I know none of those issues concern the Honourable Gentleman. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Is that well-known medical term to be frazzled the result of hugging a hoodie and making policy on the hoof? I can only say to uh, my honourable friend that when we actually analyse the policy statements of the honourable members opposite, particularly in something like the energy review yesterday, it is, as I said earlier, whatever points the right honourable gentleman can make when it comes to the long-term decisions that affect the future of this country, it's this side, not that, that has the answers. Given all the extra money which the Prime Minister likes to remind us his government has put into the National Health Service, explain why constituents of mine and many other honourable members are having to wait up to two years for an appointment for a hearing aid. And does he agree with me 
Does he agree with me that such a situation is completely unacceptable? And can he say what action he will be taking to support the RNID campaign to bring this waiting list down? We are working with organisations for the deaf in order precisely to do that. But I hope when he refers rightly to the large sums of investment that have gone into the health service and points out some of the problems we've still got to overcome, I hope he would accept how much improvement there's been in the National Health Service over the last eight or nine years as a result of the investment that's gone in. And in his own area, for example, there are 11,500 more nurses, 1,000 more consultants, and waiting times, waiting times have come down for in and out patients in a, a dramatic way. Now, that is a result of the investment and reform carried out by this government. So, yes, we've still got a lot to do, but there's a lot that's been done.